Let us draw near. Biblical worship and the warming of the soul. And if you're visiting with us, we're ever happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Any information you need, anything we can help you with. And in the fellowship hall, I see a bunch of you in there. God bless you. Good to have you. That's where the children are. They're climbing walls and, and throwing tomatoes at each other. And no, they're not. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Are you sure? Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. Pastor Chris read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another. And said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. So is this vision now? Is this the temple? And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, he didn't say holy, holy, holy. Woe is me. For I am lost, undone in the King James. I don't have it all together. That's what undone means. From a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For, that's an interesting word, for, it relates to his discovery. He has unclean lips, and the people around him all have unclean lips. And he wasn't thinking about that at all before. There was something about seeing the Lord. For I, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What do you do with unclean lips? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs. Interesting, the seraphim couldn't touch it, had to use tongs, <laughs> but will touch Isaiah's lips with it. In the olden days, I used to have people pray, and they'd pray for the pastor, Lord, anoint his lips with a coal from the altar. And i say, are you nuts? Do you know what that would feel like? <laughs> and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord. This is the first time now the voice of the Lord is mentioned in this account. Whom shall I send who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send, send me. 
Pastor Chris mentioned that in his prayer. Here am I, send me. You know where God was sending Isaiah? He was sending him to the people to say they're going to be judged. They're going into captivity and it's going to be brutal. There was the assignment. Let's pray. It is always a big event when we bow before your word. We are so grateful, Lord, for the way the Lamb of God has been slain to cleanse us from our sins and to bear your wrath, the judgment we deserve. And so as we think about worship, a million different images flood our minds. Cool songs in big sanctuaries with artificial smoke and colored lights. And here we, here we see Isaiah seeing God. Whatever else we see, if we don't see God, what a chronic waste of time it all is. And so use your word. Holy Spirit, come. Use your word in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This passage of Scripture never once uses the word worship. Not once. It's never specifically referred to anywhere here. And yet, something in all of us knows that, that Isaiah is very close to the heart of the essence of worship is all about because he's describing something that defines what our lives as worshipers are all about. He's describing what it's like. What is it like to encounter God? What is it like to encounter God? I mean, this has to be ground zero when it comes to the subject of worship. This, our world is drowning in trivia This is what matters. Think about religion. Think about Christianity. I mean, why, why do we go to church? Why do we pray? Why do we read and meditate on the scriptures? Why do we serve? It's not like we don't have anything else to do. It's not like we're not busy. None of these exercises is an end in itself. They, they only have value to the degree that they bring us to God and to the degree that they delight God. So encountering God. I think that's what true worship means. But even that is a strange saying, encountering God. I mean, he's omnipresent, meaning he's close to all of us and everything all the time. None of us can live our lives removed from his presence. But that, but that really isn't the same as encountering God. That's just knowing something about God. Experiencing God is what this passage describes. So, so again, there's that question. What should happen when a person, a church, 
but let's say a person for now, when a person encounters God, how are we going to determine whether the alleged encounter is genuine or counterfeit? What would be the long-term effects of encountering God? How would we be different? What part of life is touched beside the emotions? What's the difference between encountering God and being, you know, stirred up by a cool song with a religious crowd? This will be a series of teachings. There'll be, I don't know, 10, 11, 12. But we're going to begin, first of all, by studying something of the theology of worship. What exactly is it? Is worship important? What should it accomplish? We're going to look at what the Word teaches, what God says about the meaning and measure of worship. After all, that, that's kind of what counts the most. It's what he says about worship that matters, not what I say. And then in following messages, we're going to study the practice of worship. What are New Testament expressions of worship? What does New Testament worship look like? Why do we do the things we do and not do other things? Are we doing things right? Are we on track? Does it matter as long as we're sincere? A lot of people believe that. It's just a matter of the heart, Pastor Don. So before we go down the road with all of those issues, let's look at some key elements of God encounter. Just from this passage in Isaiah. We'll do two points this morning, just so you're not frightened. Two points this morning, and then we'll do another two next Sunday morning. For you mathematicians, four points. Point number one. Before worship is a matter of recognizing God's greatness, which it surely is, it is recognizing God's authority. Those two are not the same. I can acknowledge God as great and not obey him, for example. Happens all the time. When you look at Isaiah 6, 1, and then the last part of verse 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and here's sitting upon a, sitting upon a throne. High, lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. At the end of verse 5, for my eyes have seen, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When all the smoke clears, the dust settles, I mean, really, there's only one object that's at the middle of this vision, and it's, it's a throne. If that isn't clear enough, Isaiah, um, he Google Maps the position of this throne for us, and all he can say is that it's, it's high and, and lifted up. 
he doesn't mean it's a very tall throne. He means, it's, he means that it's above everything else. Everything else is underneath it. Everything else is lower than it. There's nothing anywhere in all the universe that is above this throne. We look up. God never has to look up. As we'll see later on, this has pretty strong implications. This isn't just theology. I mean, this has strong implications for, for a Christian vision of God and his throne when, when suddenly that begins to pressure our hearts in a direction that's radically uh, countercultural and unpopular. We're, I mean, what's the authority of God in relation to my longing to please people. The vision gets more specific. The person everyone is fussing over, the seraphim, isn't just some vague eternal spirit. He's not some uncaused first cause. He's not the ground of all being or the life spirit of the universe or the God in everyone or any such thing. What Isaiah sees is a king. For my eyes have seen, there it is, my eyes have seen the king. So, so the being is defined first and foremost in terms of authority, rulership. Throne, a throne above everything else, and on the throne there's a king. Now, there's a problem for most of us because in North America, generally, we don't, we don't conceptualize monarchies as clearly as some nations. Whether you're a monarchist and you believe in it or not, that, that's not the issue here. But the point is, we, we have come to think of kings and queens as, as more like figureheads, even if there's a measure of respect. There's a, there's a picture on a currency, there's... So in a lot of cases, in many nations of the world that still have kings and queens, they are figureheads. But not so in Isaiah's time. The king controlled all the resources of the kingdom. Predominantly, king controlled the military. He was the one person with the authority to deal with any challenges to his rule. He would prescribe patterns of worship. He would set aside special days. He would be in control of finances. He would control military. It is striking to note the way the context of Isaiah's vision presses this kingship of God with such a sharp edge. If you go back to the beginning of our text, the very first verse, you'll find that there's reference. Isaiah gives reference to Judah's ninth king, King Uzziah, and his death. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. One king dies, Isaiah sees another king. It's not accidental that the passage is constructed that way. Earthly kings do die. Also known as Azariah, 
King Uzziah reigned over Judah for 52 years. So Isaiah, the prophet, he knew all about what monarchy was. Kings chose the lifestyles for their subjects. Even today we know the difference. True monarchies, there aren't many of them, true monarchies don't have citizens, they have subjects. That is, the people live in subjection to their king. Everyone knew the role of the king in those days. Kings ruled. Kings reigned. Kings decreed. They didn't uh, ask people to vote. Now, whatever authority King Uzziah had, and however great was his rule, Isaiah had just recently come through a series of actual events that clearly demonstrated the authority of God on his throne. King Uzziah, for all of his great accomplishments in terms of military success and expanding the borders and financial power, King Uzziah did not obey the instruction of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that word for Yahweh. He didn't rid the land of the idols, as he was told to do. He didn't rid the land of all the false gods and the false worship, as God on the throne, the king, had commanded. And finally, toward the end of his reign, in one of his sadder moments, King Uzziah entered the temple itself, took upon himself the role of the priest for the people. Maybe you know the story. As soon as he gets in there, God strikes him with leprosy. He died a lonely, forgotten exile from his own people. Okay. So all of this, all of this is deeply stamped in Isaiah's mind as he gazes on the throne of God. There are earthly kings, earthly powers. And then there's the king of kings. There's there's the one on the throne. So when Isaiah sees this vision, the first thing he mentions is that the greatest earthly power in Isaiah's world has been reduced to a bleeding, ulcerous recluse because in his blind, proud, foolish vanity, he forgot the throne of God. And as soon as Uzziah dies, what does Isaiah see in his vision? They see the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. You think he connected the dots? you? Let me... I shouldn't do this. But I'm going to. Let me just talk to you about areas of your life. Let me talk to you about areas of your life and and the king on his throne. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um... One of the strengths of this church, and it, you'll think I'm bragging, and you'll realize, you'll realize in about 30 seconds that this isn't a brag at all. It's a confession. But at first, you might think I'm bragging. One of the strengths of this church is we don't, we don't stand up here and beg people for money a whole bunch. 
I mean, except for World Impact Sunday. Is that agreed? I, think, I don't think anybody would say, you know what, that's CW Church. Every time they get up, they're begging for money. And, and usually it's when something else is going on, and I'll say, oh, yeah, the offering plate's coming around. There. And it was just recently, while I was on holidays, where if I know the voice of the Lord at all, he spoke to me about that. That you're not taking your responsibility seriously to remind people. And here's here. To remind people that he who sows sparingly will also finish the verse. The way that gets twisted around, you know, give, give God a hundred bucks, you'll get a thousand back, is, is such a horrendous abuse of a biblical truth. And I think anybody who's attended here for more than a week knows that that's not the camp I'm in. But it is a biblical truth. There are people who, who the king, this is just an illustration, who don't take the authority of God, they raise their hands, they close their eyes, they sing the songs, and they don't take the authority of God seriously when it comes to their money. So sparingly. Sparingly means what I can spare, right? That's what it means. Sparingly is the opposite of lavishly, <laughs> generously. What happens when I sow sparingly? Well, the king on the throne says, you're going to reap sparingly. It Does, doesn't mean that you won't have a lot of money in, in terms of your relationship with your kids, in terms of answered prayer presence of God in your daily life. A sense of, a sense of pleasing the Lord. A, a sense of, of the joy of the Lord. It's going to be sparse in your life. And it's going to be tied to the fact that just, this is just an illustration. When you give, you just do it sparingly. We've got people in this church. I don't know what anybody in this church gives besides myself. And I can say that before God. I haven't got a clue what anybody gives. I've never even wanted to know. But I do something like this. I'll go to the office and I'll say, can you tell me how many people would be members in our church who haven't given anything to this church in the last six months? There are scores of people like that. Scores of people. We have people that will give a huge offering on World Impact Sunday and then go the whole rest of the year and not give anything to the general fund of the church. This speech isn't born out of poverty. We don't owe any money. We have no debts. We, this, we, we set money aside and pay for it as we go. But what's going to happen in people's hearts when they don't hear the king on his throne? And so, this is the issue. That's merely an illustration. That's just an illustration. This is not a tame king. This is all recorded in such blazing detail, so we will never forget it. Be behold the lesson of the throne of God. Do worship passionately. Do worship joyfully. The Lord is in control even when all earthly security is in turmoil, like when a king dies. But never forget to worship submissively, obediently, carefully. 
This is not a tame king. He doesn't serve. He is served. He's not a God to whom I can refuse homage without consequence. And probably, probably we need to recapture some of that. Probably we need to recapture some of that. To the degree worshipers make God more suitable to their tastes, they will fail to reach him. He doesn't, the king doesn't conform. We conform. The king doesn't modify. We modify. What is the purpose in worshiping the greatness of God if I don't obey this God? See, if God isn't great, then I need not obey him at all. In fact, if he isn't great, I don't need to bother with him at all. But if he is great, far beyond my wildest ability to imagine, and if he is still seated on a throne, then I'd I'd better obey him. It's the most important thing in my life. A minute ago I said that even in our contemporary worship, it's easy to focus on either the beauty of God's presence or the vastness of his love. Surely those are worthy themes of worship. You get no argument from me. All of that is great because God is eternally loving. His presence is beautiful beyond telling. But, but it's still incomplete. This is not the fault of of anyone here in this church. This is the church, especially the North American church. Quickly as you can, think of a worship course that has the word judgment in it. John a blank? There aren't any. Or at least I might be corrected somewhere. There's very, 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 very few. Well, Pastor Don, who cares? Why are you making... Such a big deal of that. Isn't that a little bit negative? Don't you think we believe in, in judgment and God's wrath and sin? Church, I know we believe in those things. My concern is just a little bit different. It's different. My concern is what begins to gradually happen to the, the background picture of God that we all just carry around without thinking about it over the course of two or three generations in the truths that we repeat and express together. That's what corporate worship is all about. And the truths that shaped Isaiah's vision of the king on the throne are never heard in a church. What starts to happen? What impact does that eventually have? Does anything of substance start to slowly dissolve the the quest for purity in a church when those truths about the impact of the king and the throne of God aren't sort of freshly carved into our minds every week when we come into this place of worship? Well, I'll tell you what happens. What happens is exactly what we see where you have Christian couples increasingly. Ask the pastors. They'll come and talk. They're coming here. They sit here every Sunday and sing about God, and they live together, common law. And they don't see anything wrong with it. You know why? Because God is loving. 
And all sorts of things start to happen when the throne of God isn't carved into our corporate framework. We will profess to believe in God while we fashion our own lifestyles. And the church, church will buy into all sorts of mental muck. Good worship should prepare us for the throne of God. Because uh, we're all going to stand before that throne one day. Good worship should prepare us for the throne of God while we're on earth. It's the whole point of Isaiah's vision. The, the way we worship on Sunday is a, is a divine provision for launching us into God-saturated, countercultural service and witness. That's what happened with Isaiah. Look at the passage. Uh, he has, Isaiah has this vision of the throne of God, and the reason he has it is, here am I, send me. He is told to go and proclaim judgment on God's people for their failure to bow before that very same throne that he sees. And God says to Isaiah, tell them. Tell them. Any way you cut it, we are headed toward the throne. And, and this is the point where worship, true worship, can be of such value. It, it, it focuses my life on the throne of God now. Good worship. Good worship should make it impossible to ignore the authority of the king. The God we worship is king. Don't just think about his greatness in general. Worship isn't gooey. Worship isn't mystically trancing out. Worship is thinking deep. Worship is seeing the throne. Think about the king. Every time you sing, maybe you sing on the platform, maybe you play on the platform, Think about the king, the throne. Two, after emphasizing caution in worship, the next most important ingredient is diligence in worship. It's in verses 2, 3, and 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Nobody knows exactly what seraphim look like. You might have a Bible that has a picture of them, but I'm telling you now, it's not an actual photograph. Above him stood the seraphim. We don't know how many. It doesn't really say. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another. One called to another. And said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So even in the worship of these great heavenly beings, there's nothing but, but humility. I, I, love, 
I love the mention of them covering their faces with their wings. So, so, worship should be joyful. Worship is never fun. I was in a service not that long ago, and at the beginning, the, the, the worship person got up and said, this is just going to be a fun morning in the Lord's presence. It's something in me just went, What is happening? What is happening with these angelic beings? What is happening before the throne of God that they can't help but cover their faces? What's that about? Like, ugh. It's like, it's like what they see of God, the king on the throne. It's, uh, it's too big. It's too bright. They don't have to pretend to be reverent or humble before this God. They, they hide their faces in a gesture that forever reminds us of the removal of self before the throne of God. The only worshiper who remains proud, self-absorbed, defiant, careless, distracted, whatever word you want to put in there, is the one who, who really doesn't get what he's looking at at all. Just doesn't get it. Also, notice the corporate dimension. Verse 3 is fascinating. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Did you notice when they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, they weren't even talking to God? Did you see it? Talking to each other? Do you, you've done that before, haven't you? You're driving by something spectacular or, or you see something, you go, hey, hey, look at this! It's easy to be by something great and not give it attention. When I was a kid, we went through uh, Yellowstone National Park. All six of us, Rambler Station Wagon, four boys in the back, mom and dad in the front trying to pretend we weren't there. <laughs> we went through Yellowstone Park, and when I found out, you know, you have things in your life that you mark as a bitter disappointment. And when I found out that there was no, I'm not kidding, there was no Yogi Bear And I, and I laid down in the back. Nobody wore seatbelts. Remember those days? How did we all live, eh? You're crawling over the seats, get a sandwich, you go back. Lying down, sleeping in the back, and I never, I, I never looked out the window. Just drowned in my weeping and sadness. <laughs> you, you, you're going by great things and not paying any, any attention. And my folks would, look, look, look. No Yogi Bear. It's, but it's, it's something, there's something here. There's something here that, that the ultimate worship and awe-inspiring vision of God can't be 
captured by yourself. It's with the people of God. Look. Do you see what I see? Look. They're sort of pulled together as they're drawn toward this throne. Something had to be expressed together with others. Think about that, church. Don't let it just drift by. Something will draw your family together with the people of God in worship that will never happen at the cottage or on the boat. Something happens here. But I really want to highlight this second point in this sense. Diligence. Theologians speculate about this threefold repetition of the word holy. Holy, holy. Nobody knows. Some think it relates to the triune nature of the Godhead. And while God certainly is three in one, there's no Christianity without the Trinity. The text doesn't say this was the cause, though, of the threefold repetition. I still like the words, the old words of John Calvin, who said this about that verse. This repetition rather points to the unwearied perseverance. As if to teach, the angels never cease in their melody in singing praises to God. As if the holiness of God supplies us with inexhaustible reasons for worship. The longer you live the Christian life, you'll learn, I'm just coming to learn, just like you, In my own experience, the biggest battle isn't becoming a person of worship. The biggest battle is remaining a person of worship. Because you start to know it. These celestial beings don't don't just bow, and they don't just exclaim. They bow, and they wonder, and they shout and exclaim continuously. They never grow indifferent. They never grow silent. In in a wonderful sacred rhythm, each one is carried forward by the crying out of the other. That's the way it works. This church has a stake in your worship. There will always be distractions to corporate worship. The devil will see to it. Too loud. Too long, too contemporary, too cold, too dark. And we do have an awful lot of things. You saw that this morning. Awful lot of things to work through. But, but I love, I love this picture. I love this picture of worshiping beings who, who can do nothing but, compl- but contemplate the holiness of God. It, it's like they can't see anything else going on around them. They're being drawn in. It's absorbing. So there's caution and carefulness because we approach a throne. There's diligence and expression. There's this corporate element of worship that needs reconsidering in the church.
I want to talk now as I wrap up, worship and your spiritual growth. God calls me to worship, but not just for my own growth. God calls me to be a worshiper for your growth spiritually. And God calls you to be a worshiper as we've defined it here, the king on the throne. God calls you to be a worshiper to help my spiritual growth. Let me tell you where I get that as we wrap up. Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. As Paul starts writing to this church at Ephesus, the way he starts doesn't really give you a clue to how he's going to end up. Tell me if you see a theme here. Look carefully then at how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so here we go. Look at how you walk. Redeem the time. Know the will of the Lord. Hear. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what we want, eh? Look at those four things. That's good stuff. Be careful how you walk. Holiness. Making the best use of time. Understand the will of the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. And we all say, I'm in. That's what I need. Paul, how are we going to do this? That's what he's going to talk about. And it's surprising what he says next. How are we going to do these four things? Dressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I would submit to you that what he talks about there, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, melody to the Lord, thankfulness, bit of a mess, but do you see what he's saying? Worship. That's what we're studying. Worship the way Isaiah talks about it accomplishes more than just gives me a blessing. It will help me to walk in holiness. It will help me to be relevant to the needs of the culture and my own uh, physical briefness of life, knowing the times, investing my life properly, knowing the will of the Lord, being filled with the Spirit. All of that happens, he says, get, get, get together. He calls the church to a careful walk of purity, to be wise in the use of time in evil days, to be filled with the Spirit, and then it's like those angels, those seraphim, addressing one another. Come! Come, see what I've seen in Christ. Worship with me. Don't stay home. Come.
The reason for it is obvious when you think again about our text in Isaiah 6. See, not only did Isaiah become aware of his own need, I'm a man of unclean lips. He also became aware of the need of the rest of God's people. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinful person. You're a sinful person. See that person on your right and your left? Stare at that person on your right just for a second. Yeah, he's a, he or she, they're, they're sinners. They're sinners. I, mean, I know it's cute and I know we laugh and I don't blame you because I set it up that way. But the fact remains, the fact remains, God wants your passionate worship of the king on his throne to be a tool to make that person next to you more careful and joyful in their worship of the king on the throne. That's the way it works. Worship isn't icing on the cake. It's the cake. God wants to redeem everything about you. And he wants to use your worship to cleanse your life and to affect a deeper, deeper work of grace in your brothers and sisters in this church. And it all starts where people truly see God on his throne, high and lifted up. We'll do two more points on this, on this next week.